I'm going to read uh, from Magician's Hat, and I'm going to start with a poem which I think sums up the situation that uh, Siqueiros found himself in, in back in Mexico after three years of fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Um, he's considered to be a dangerous customer, and so he's being watched. This one's called The Colonel Comes Calling. A black sedan, gleaming chrome grill, sidled, stopped. No din, just a zzz of a right rear window sliding down. A dead fish voice, Siqueiros recognized from the revolution. He bent in half to look inside. Salazar in his chief of state police uniform. David climbed into the colonel's web on wheels. The electrician's union building, the uniform told his driver. Siqueiros grinned. Is there anything you don't know about me? The unmarked Buick carved the rotary. The angel of independence reached up, holding the promissory note for heavenly rewards, yet trapped by one toe in its terrestrial prison. The colonel offered a cigarette. Still interested in politics? He flamed both cigarettes with a gold lighter. Siqueiros opened an ashtray in the door. You've been ghosting me since I got back from Spain. The colonel's eyebrow raised slightly. Maybe you should have stayed there. Banks flashed stock quotes in digits. It's Friday, the clock said. Traders were taking profits from teachers' pensions, from farmers' children, buying houses they planned to burn to the ground. They knew how to make money from disasters. They had bought insurance. Hundreds of file clerks, all aluminum elbows, knees, silver spiked high heels, black plastic umbrella rapiers crowded into skyscrapers the sides of their mouths grim as they steeled themselves to turn humans into data. Is this the change we fought for? The colonel sneered. We fought for pocket change. Along the paseo, Men in gray jumpsuits swept sidewalks with palmetto brooms between busts of Mexico's heroes and royal palms. The way the workers get screwed never changes. Siqueiros reached, took the colonel's sunglasses off, startled to see an eight-year-old in military costume, epaulets, Medals, 
hat dwarfing him. His brushy eyebrows looked glued on. Siqueiros fought back a smile as he watched the boy Salazar lift his cigarette to his little mouth. Please, no rants, he squeaked. Just don't go to the march against Trotsky. Sun sliced his eyes through the still-opened window. What march? Don't play stupid, David. The colonel put his sunglasses back on. Siquero saw reflected in the colonel's mirrors himself as a young captain on a troop train with machine guns chugging north to Sonora. 1919, locomotive steam, cigarette smoke, the Mexican time machine, Monte Alban, stone gods, Oaxaca's church spires. Sunlight glittered on the colonel's medals, epaulets. David said, let me paint your portrait. You're ready now. At the corner of Insurgentes, a traffic cop in leather jacket, jodhpurs, white helmet, wrote a ticket with a Quetzal pen on a white-haired cabbie who, hands together, prayed, fervent, to be let off. A pitiful sight, a man with no palanca, the colonel observed. But as a hero of the revolution, you could write your own ticket if only you would. That's exactly what I must not do. The car slowed to a red light. A beggar woman held her baby in her arms. David Quick opened the colonel's door, jumped out, and as a collectivo swung by, jumped on, flipping his cigarette that hit the Buick's windshield in a disaster of sparks. So you can see what I'm doing, right? This is a movie. Okay, this is, in other words, it, it, it's, it's like fiction, but I hope it's good. I mean, I hope it's better. I hope it's better than, you know what I mean, Dan Brown or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> you know? And there are things that happen in these poems that would be very hard to film, you know? Um, because there are, there are things that can happen in language that are marvelously liberating. Um, you know, I was reading a book, talking with Doug Valentine about this book um, called The Uprising, in which the author uh, talks about, the subtitle is Poetry and Finance of All Things. And he says, the thing about poetry is that it's very clear um, that it's value added, you know? That, for, I mean, the first time I really, really understood that was I was reading um, Hart Crane, 
in a poem called uh, Chaplinesque, in which he says, uh, he's talking about Charlie Chaplin, and, and he says that, that the moon makes a grail of a trash can. See what I mean? It adds value. You know? It gives you something. Shakespeare said it too, right? What is it, what is it that one man can give another and, and not be made poorer by it? Answer, a word. A word. I, I, I'm going to jump just, just for what I mean here. <laughs> I can't stop teaching. Part of the reason, part of the reason I wrote this book is that I got, um, I got into the tutelage of a Russian film director named Sergei Eisenstein, and Eisenstein said, "What is a film but an animated mural? Make it happen. Make it come alive. That's what I'm trying to do." I'm just going to read you one. Stanza, the opening stanza of the book, and I'd like to have you listen particularly to the last two lines. Okay? It starts off, it's descriptive. Evening. Pan down a herringbone sky, the color of hammered copper. Sunbeams through royal palm fronds, striking the indigo walls Diego painted as a wedding present to Frida, giving in a fountain for a mouth and a tongue of water so it could bear its blue witness. You see what I mean? That it starts in a certain descriptive way and then it just turns into value added, which is what Yusef brought with him to the school I was at at the time. All right, so you see the situation where here's a guy, he's, he's, he's painting murals, and they're government-funded. And all they want from him is that he come over to their side. As a hero of the revolution, you could write your own ticket if only you would. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, if only you'd come to our side, right? Which is um, actually not so bad. It's the PRI, but that's all a matter of opinion. So here's the next poem, and it's called The Electrician's Union Building, right? When the colonel says, Edificio, <laughs> etc. And here's, so this is the inside of the building and, and, and a painting he's working on. Curved twin staircases drew the eye up to the murals, steel power stanchions painted on the ceiling leaning their tips toward the sun disk with white sails of electric plasma, while on one side, the hawk 
offbeat minister of finance sent the temple of justice up in flames. And on the other side, death pointing its rifle quite nakedly at the endless ranks of human beings fed by gas-masked spooks into the foreground, the painting's point. Looked at from above, the whole assemblage was absurd. Why would human beings allow themselves to be herded by a few armed soldiers toward the minting press that stamps them into coins, as if Midas had at last learned not to mind when his touch turned his children to gold, splashing out to the occult beneficiaries? They who make and burst bubbles, they who received the sun's bounty transmuted by coal-fired dynamos into lightning waves by men and lizards in Vulcan's caves. They whose commandments speak from radio tower factory smokestacks where the automaton made animate eats all, rich and poor, Stokers of flame, the whole inferno, top, sides, bottom, engulfing the viewer inside life's history. From its outgassing springs to amoeba to lungfish to humankind, nothing left but pools of sludge, a bleak vision, except the greater crime would be to turn away to flee into the bubble of doubt, quibbling over minutia, or some tale where water kills the witch. For how is the enormity of it to be conceived? This enormous magic machine that convinces every man and woman they must work for it at a wage that kills the soul or the body will die. Luis, his brother-in-law, Luis heard Siqueiros' footsteps on marble. His waggling cigar stub chided his friend for being late as he clambered up the platform's bamboo triangles. Salazar picked me up again. Siqueiros grumbled, swooping up his spray gun connecting hose, flipping on switch, forming silvery black eagle swept back bomber wings, hovering over its panicked prey, easy pickings. Luis chewed his stub, hangdog that David promised him the eagle but reneged, obsessed with fashioning one with iron feathers that can slice flesh claws that made Mexico a bandit-ridden hellhole. Luis asked when he was going to have a say. Who's the maestro here? Siqueiros barked. Luis took his cigar out of his mouth. I looked for you at the farm collective meeting last night in Joshimilco. Where were you? 
A beggar woman with crying infant padded into the hall, looked at the mural, spat on the tiled floor, breastfeeding. It's impolite to stare, Louise said. Years ago, I challenged Diego to paint such a woman. He picked up a charcoal and found her curves. The muralist movement was born in that very moment. The baby stopped crying. Siqueiros wondered how to paint her, feeding all of Mexico. Luis's voice climbed into the sound vacuum. The bank of commerce is foreclosing on them. What David felt at others' woe pulled apart the web he used to trap his rage. He slammed the spray gun down, tore his apron off, rushed out past tourist junk shops, alleys of homeless living off restaurant garbage. Picking up a loose sidewalk brick, he entered the bank of commerce, leaned over a dowager. How can you put your money in a bank that forecloses on poor farmers? The woman looked up at him. Don't hurt me. Two bank guards rushed over. He's got a brick. Clash. Guns at his head on the marble floor. Next poem, he's in jail. And so on and so forth. So, um, considering uh, I will do one more poem, and I'll do it from... Um, shooting script, which is the first book, and I I want to I want to to uh, get my publisher to issue these two together because this one is the the sequel of this one. Okay, and I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm hopeful that he will do that. And then we will call the whole thing Double Album. You see what I'm always trying to do? I'm trying to break out, you know, to break out of this fine arts trap, you know, <laughs> because we're all humans. Anyway, oh, I think I should also read you the one of the, I think this is good. I'm going to, let's face it, I would be here for hours. If, this, is, this is from a poem by Diane de Prima. Uh, talk about, talk about a, she's not only an old hippie, she's an old beatnik. Diane de Prima, a poem called Rant. And she says, there is no way out of the spiritual battle the war is the war against the imagination. You can't sign up as a conscientious objector. She's, I always loved her. I'm going to read you a poem called, um, and then I'll, and then I'll see the lectern. It's called Hollywood Comes to San Angel, which is, they had a house in 
Gao, you know, in Goyhuacan, and they also had a house in, uh, in San Angel. Diego jams a champagne bottle like maracas in a silver ice bucket. On every studio wall, campesinos march, machetes on shoulders, blue cacti like winnowing hands of the dead sprout from the earth to beseech the pitiless sun. Peasant women in rebozos beg alms at the gates of El Chapultepec. Doorbell chimes. See the inherent music of language? Just the inherent music. Tor doorbell chimes. Right? When he, when he opens it, there stands Paulette Goddard, a small radiant woman in white summer dress, big garden party hat. She hands him an envelope from Gershwin, she says. What are you doing in Mexico? He rips the letter open. A photo shoot for Lick magazine to uh, publicize my latest comedy. And Georgie says, you should paint me. Diego reads, he actually calls me a Latin lover. Well, aren't you? She unpins her hat, lays it on the table. But how shall I pose you? Paulette's eyes says, she will become whatever he wants. He dances her toward a wall covered in photographer's backdrop paper. She gives him a down from under look. Was that a tango? Diego feels her heat, her short index of, break, of breath. The silver screen has never done you justice. You like movies? She picks up the champagne bottle. The gangster wants. The slang they talk. It tickles me. Say son. She peels back the pink foil. You have a European kisser, he says, like Edward G. Robinson. I'm American, pure mongrel, half Jewish. Me too. I trace back to a mystic philosopher from Lisbon. Stop. You're making me nervous. How is Mexico treating you? At the bullfights, the matador dedicated his victory to me. Then some jerk said the bullfighter was an amateur. I said, maybe but the bull's a professional. <laughs> Close on the tip of her tongue between her teeth as she untwists wires. He settles Paulette down on pillows. She looks from that height at his zipper. Now what? Now we wait for the magic. Did you know I was raised by a bruja? You see, my twin, Carlito, died before we were one. My mother fell upon his grave, wouldn't leave the cemetery. My father sent me to Antonia while he struggled 
for my mother's sanity. So you have two mothers. One is a witch, a curandera, who helps the poor miners at the Valenciana. When I arrived, I didn't have much will to live. Understandable. Your mother was grieving. I was off my feet. But Antonia had a plan. She, she convinced a she-goat to be my third mother. I suckled at her udders and became, and became the man you see. Paulette looks up at him, dumbstruck. I'm more animal than man. She gets up to give him a kiss, but he pulls back. She pouts. Don't you like me? It's hard for a man, one of whose mother was a goat, to take himself seriously. You and Frida are getting a divorce, right? Alas, he says. As Diego leans for the comfort of her kiss, Frida's pet monkey, Fulan, jumps on her shoulder, its tail long and thick as a black snake. Paulette shrieks. Diego carries him over the bridge to Frida's half of the house, returns. She says, I've had rivals in love, but that. Diego takes Paulette in his arms. You move me like the inherent beauty of, ah, oh, shucks, Diego. She looks for something to change the subject to. She points to a charcoal on the wall. What about that? A pig-nosed general dancing with donkey-headed politicians, each picking the other's pocket. Where are you in that picture? Diego points to a grinning skull labeled Eternidad. He slaps his forehead. Oh, God, I'm supposed to meet Trotsky. The Trotsky? When? Five. Is it five? I'll tell you a secret that works. You hit the gas, never the brakes. You hold your breath, and you get there on time. As he heads to the door, Paulette calls out, hey! He comes back, snatches her up in his arms. She reaches down to the bulge. Oh, my, she says. Hurry back. All right. Bill. <laughs> Great to hear you. <laughs> I can't wait to hear you. Okay. Island. An island is one great eye gazing out, beckoning, lighthouse, searchlight, a wishbone compass, or counterweight to the stars, when it comes to outlook, 
and point of view. Her figure stands on a rocky ledge, peering out towards an archipelago of glass on the mainland, a seagull's wings touching the tip of a high wave out to where the brain may stumble. But when a mind clams down from its high, craggy lookout, we know it is truly a stubborn thing and has to leaf through pages of dust and light through pre-memory and folklore, remembering Far's road down there till they pushed up through the seafloor and plumes of ash covered the dead, shaking the weight worlds away and silence filled up with centuries of waiting. Sea urchin, turtle, and crab came with earthly know-how and one bird arrived the sprig in its beak before everything clouded with cries a millennium of small deaths now topsoil and seasons of blooms and a single seed light edge along salt crusted stones across a cataract of blue water and lost sailors' parrots spoke of sirens, the last words of men buried at sea. Someone could stand here contemplating the future, leafing through pages of St. Augustine or of the prophecies of fishermen translating spur and folly down to taproot the dreamy-eyed boy still in the man, the girl and the woman, a sunny forecast behind today, but tomorrow's beyond words. To behold a body of water is to know pig iron and mother wet. Whoever this figure is, he will soon return to dancing through the aroma of Dagger's Log, Ginger Lily, and Bolinvillia, between chants and strange struck to a gorge rally the hill in the air until the church steeple birds fly sweet darkness home. Wherever this friend or lover is, he intones redemptive harmonies to lie down and remembrance is to know each of us is a prodigal son or daughter looking out beyond land and sky, the chemical and metaphysical beyond falling and turning water wheels and the colossal brain of damnable gods a eureka held up to the sun's blinded eye, born to gaze into far. After conquering frontiers, the mind comes back to rest, stretching out 
over the white sand. Fortress. Now, I began with these two hands held before me as blessing and weapon, blackbirds in fierce flight and instruments of touch and consolation. This sign means stop, and this one, of course, means come forth, friend. I draw a circle in the red iron clay around my feet where no evil spirit dares to find me. One's hands held at this anger. Over a boy's head is a roof over a sanctuary. I'm a greenhorned in my fortress in the woods with my right eye pressed to a knot hole. I can hear a buzz in the persimmon tree. It's ripe letting go, a tiny white cross and each seed. The girl's fiery jump rope strikes the ground. I see the back door of that house close to the slow creek where a drunken, angry man stumbles across the threshold every Friday. I see forgiveness, unbearable twilight, and these two big hands know too much about nail and hammer, plank and uneasy sky, hewn stoned and mortar is another world, and sometimes a tall gate comes first. Then huge wooden barrels of grain, flour, salt, meat, and quick lime before, 28 crossbows in four towers. Envoy to Palestine. I've come to this one grassy hill in Ramada off Tokyo Street to place a few red anemones and a sheaf of wheat on Darvish's grave. A barred line transported me beneath a Babylonian's moon, and I found myself lucky to have the shadow of a coat for warmth, listening to a poet's song of Jerusalem, Caesar, Iraq, a red string stolen off Gilgamesh's lute. I know a prison of sunlight on the scan, the land I come from, they also dreamt before they arrive in towering ships, battered by the hard Atlantic winds. Crows 
from my reservation, follow me. My coyote heart is an old renegade, redskin, Nova, savage, still Lakota, and I knew the bow before the arch. I can feel wildflowers, all the grasses and insects singing to me. My sacred dead is the dust of restless plains I come from. And I love when it gets in my eyes, into my eyes and mouth, telling me of the roads behind and ahead. I go back to broken treaties and smallpox, the irony of barbed wire. Your envoy could be a reprobate, those whose inheritance is only more than a shred, a sprig of fire water. The sun made a temple of the bones of my tribe. I know a dried up riverbed and extinct animals live and those nightmares sharp as shark teeth from my mountains strung into this brave necklace around my neck. I hear chief standing bear Send to George Dundee, I am a man, and now I know why. I'd rather die a poet than die a warrior, tattoo, and tomahawk. And the last poem is, um, um, an ongoing poem, I think. I keep uh, telling myself that that's the case, uh, that it's supposed to expand and get longer and longer, right? Uh, it's called Requiem. So, when the strong and holy high winds whiplash over the soul off marshlands eaten back to a sigh of salt water, the Crescent City was already shook down to a pylons, her floating ribs, her spleen and backbone left trembling and old world facades and postmodern lethargy, lost to waterlogged memories and quick claim deeds, exposed for all eyes, damnable gaze, plumb lined and heart throb ballast and water tabor, already the last ghost song of the Choctaw, and the Chippewaw was long gone, no more than a drunken curse among the oak and sweet gum leaves, a tally of broken treaties, and absences echoing cries of birds over the barrier islands, inherited by the remittance man, Scalawag, and King Cotton, and already the sky was falling in on itself, calling like a cloud of seagulls, gone ravenous as the guff, reclaiming its ebb and flowchart, while the wind banged on shutters and unhanged doors from their frames and unshingled the low ridge roofs while the believers hum precious lord and deep river as the horsehair plastered walls galloped along with the surge already folklore 
began to rise up from the buried lalligag and sluice, passing beneath the big easy, rolling between and through itself, caught in some downward tug and turn, like a world of love affairs, backed up in a stalled inlet, and knelt down army of cypress, a testament to how men dreamt land out of water where bedrock is only the heart's bumping grind, his deep dark churn and acceleration blows it down to those unmoored timbers. Already nothing but water, mumbling as the great eye lingered on a question, then turned, the gauzy genitalia of Bacchus and Zulu left dangling from magnolias and rain trees already. Wow. All right. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Having taken in all, all those that those marvelous poems and words, and I would just simply open it up uh, by um, maybe I ask Bill a question first, and then we start. And it's all open up to you. I'm just giving you a chance to take a deep breath, and then I'm hearing Bill, and I'm hearing. I used to think a fellow called uh, Gab, uh, Rossetti, that poet, was a poet and a painter, <laughs> yeah. old English guy. And of course, he used paintings, but of course, in terms of paintings, it seems to give him some additional insights. And something in the language was almost melodious and almost, you could hear the language or the rhythm of the, la of, of the language uh, in his words, but of course, as a reflection of the paintings. And I was wondering, what's the attraction with painting? Why do you think the painting is so powerful? And how does it help you in terms of both the language? And why these guys go to language to really talk about their work? Mm -hmm. um. I think, particularly in the case of Siqueiros, the reason I'm attracted to him is that he painted metaphors. Okay? In other words, what he, in the painting that I describe in the uh, electrician union building, he has as a central image this enormous screw which, when turned, will take material and press it. It's a, a minting press. And here are these people, a line serpentine to the horizon, two by two stepping into the machine, crunched down, and then in the painting, a pile of golden coins. Yeah. You can, I guess just get the questions ready. One more thing I want to ask you, Seth, and then I'll probably <laughs> take my seat and you just do your thing. Palestine. Palestine. Okay. I'm hearing broken trees. I'm hearing Indians. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what is the link between land and land taken, land stolen, land used, treaties made, treaties not. What's going on there? I didn't quite. Could you tell us what's happening in that rather interesting poem? Okay. Um, I wanted to write about Palestine. And um, 
I, I found a way uh, to, enter, to enter that landscape. I've been really moved by um, Dowager's work and um, just his um, lyricism, his sort of innate uh, duende. Um, so after Dorish died, I sort of visualized myself going there, putting um, you know, a flower, a sheaf of wheat on his grave. Um, but I said, well, how does one transport oneself there with a certain kind of um, parallel um, emotion? And it was through Native American. I had also written, um, I had written some years ago um, a piece called Wakanda's Dream, which is a libretto. Um, for, and it centered on um, the trial of Chief Standing Bear. And Chief Standing Bear, this trial happened in 18. 76. This is long after the Civil War. And um, Chief Standing Bear entered the court um, to prove that he was indeed a human being. When he appears before Judge Dundee, that's what he's there to do, to prove that he is a human being. Um, and I thought um, behind that, if we think about information, we think about facts, history, and what have you, often things sort of dovetail, especially for the poet, okay? They meet, they converge. So that's what, that, those are moments of history that sort of just converge uh, there within the context of the envoy to Palestine. Shayla Tez, Palestine, Native Indians. Any, uh, any questions? I know you want to jump into the conversation, so why don't we hear you? Anybody wants to? Ask any question. I mean, don't be scared. I mean, this is Wellesley, man. You guys are scared. What's going on here? Yes. Mr. Sh Mr. Mr. Englishman and Mr. English poet, uh, you've got to help us out here. You're the poet. Uh, tell us about Requiem and why you said it was a standalone. Well, Requiem, um, someone um, wanted me to. <laughs> to respond to Katrina, and um, I did um, 40 some lines, but it's all one sentence. That, that's why it's also read at a certain speed, I think, um, with um, already, sort of the word already, just pushing um, history along. Um, at first, I wanted it to be about, um, you know, the destruction that happened. It started there, but also, um, in, I think that has to do with the structure of it. It became all inclusive, like the, like the water itself, you know, just pulling at the history of the place, the people, what have you. Mm -hmm. And there isn't um, a logical symmetry. Else? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask Bill a question about um, what drew you into Mexican American politics. Um, <laughs> <Because> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I, 
how important do you think that is to, to engage that as an American writer as well? I think that what's happening in the United States has also been happening in a parallel way in Mexico uh, only earlier. Uh, that is to say, um, there has been a kind of aristocracy in Mexico that was, how shall I say, mm, its bloodline was thinned somewhat in the United States. The, the story, if you want to read it, is by a man named Cash. The book is called The Mind of the South, and it is a retelling of the story of the cavalier class of uh, British landed gentry who basically transported their history, culture, values to the, to the American Southeast. And, um, you know, <laughs> there is a similar level uh, going on in, in Mexico. And it's, it's, it's a very, um, how shall I say, for me, as I've always been involved in education, um, the goal for my individual students was always to fulfill themselves by um, using the opportunities that are present mm. and have been. And I think if you look um, at the newspapers and reports, you see that there's a kind of threat to that sense of opportunity. But in the American that, story, there's no Trotsky. Yes, there are, but well, you, tell me, you never mean, heard of them. <laughs> for instance, maybe. Yes, let's for instance uh, John I, I think the, the closest we came to a Trotsky in, the, in American history is a woman named Emma Gold, Goldstein. Goldman. 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 Sorry, Goldman. Yeah. Geez, yeah. where my head? Yeah. yeah. She's been yeah. there. Yeah. She was terrific. Yeah. Yes, Carol is here. No, I don't. <laughs> no, no, no. no, but, you know, if, um, I always thought that um, I would write about other things. I, initially, I engage um, maybe the conceits of um, surrealism, 
And only when I was in New Orleans, um, working with my hands, which I love to do, um, my experience in Vietnam sort of edged into my poetry uh, without any kind of plan. I, I never thought I would write about those experiences, especially in poetry. I thought I would write essays because I'd been really influenced by James Baldwin. Uh, so, um, yeah. but um, once I wrote one poem somewhere near Phu Bai, all the other poems about Vietnam just came forth, you know. Um, you I promised ready. myself I wouldn't write about Vietnam anymore. You were, you were ready. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. Yeah, but we're talking, about, we're talking about the warrior tradition, that sense of engagement and activism. Uh, does that come in uh, consciously uh, in the work? Or do you see yourself as performing a very kind of activist function in your poetry? Well, well we, internalize, we internalize a history. And, and that internalized history, that landscape, becomes an overlay for how we experience and view the world. And sometimes that world is internal as opposed to an outward glance world mm -hmm. in the foreground as such. Uh, so it's really a voyage. That's the way I see it. Um, I, I wrote a poem called Grenade. Um, that was much later. Um, and it's in the form of a prose poem. I wish I could just recite it off the top of my head but I won't even attempt. Um, Well, it was a way of recording history as well. Um. Well, for me, um, the image is the most important element of the poem. Uh, the poem is really a composite of images. That's the way I see it. And for simple reason, because images are deceptive. They, um, you know, they are with us even when we are not fully aware. We wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, you know, those images are there. In a way, images are subversive. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Right. Yes. Right.
Uh, I, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't call it that. It's it's just, it's just an attitude. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I want to move inside human subjectivity, and when I do, I find that I am in a social subjectivity. And when I'm in that social subjectivity, I feel a kinship to artists like Bertolt Brecht, mm -hmm. who is continuously attempting to break down that fourth wall, to break down the distance between the audience and the, the, the artist, and begin a real dynamic dialogue. Uh, with with the the art between the artist and and those who as yet have not recognized the artist within themselves, uh, Yusuf just used the word subversive, and what I'm trying to subvert is how shall I say? The fact that if we are not careful, we do not recognize the sense in which we subtly give away our subjectivity. Mm. We find it so easy to measure in quantity. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we. we I don't know if you call it laziness, you know. What we should be looking at is quality. And that's so much more difficult, you know. But it's, it's the very difficulty that engages us, that gives us that intense interest, that feeds our lives and doesn't put us in a position where um, we are uh, a panel of field grade officers <laughs> sitting at a desk looking at a man who says, I am a man. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and we don't even understand his declaration. <laughs> That's obvious, or what? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and 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 so it's it's. I mean, it's all about what this is, which is the humanities and the extension mm. of the humanities. Because having having, I don't know, just got into a rut or whatever we. We lose it. Yeah. We let it slip from us. And this it is? Our feeling of our own potential. Mm. I was sitting in a lovely kitchen with a bay window looking out in a, a town called Carlisle with my son Ben and just looking at the trees turning for fall. Mm. 
and I said, this is a beautiful planet. <laughs> you know, and I think Ben felt yeah. my joy in that radiant moment. And uh, we had a moment of communion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Um, and, and, and I'm also talking about the myriad ways in which um, the, just simply being part of the mechanisms uh, just we get we get so busy that we 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 let go. It's like I don't know, just images flashing in a in a you know in a train as you're watching mm -hmm. out the window, but not even really because you're thinking, oh God, tomorrow I'm going to have to have lunch with somebody I hate. <laughs> oh, it doesn't get that bad. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yet, you had anything to add to that? or? You? Well, it's interesting because um, we, I, I think it has to do with the fact that time and space um, have something to do with how we function as citizens of the world. Um, feeling. We are afraid of feelings, I think. Um, and consequently, we have imprisoned ourselves in collective abstractions. <laughs> I like that. We have imprisoned ourselves in collective abstractions. Any other questions? You can probably allow one or two more, and then uh, you have your hand up, yes? Well, this is sort of related to um, the question about prose versus poetry. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of the introductions. Do they say you also write novels? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you spoke of shooting script. I don't know if that's the name of your book. Or poem, it is. Or poem. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about writing a film script, actually? I'm listening to it. It's like, well, why don't you write a film script? I have. I've written a dozen. <laughs> Some of them got close. Yeah. All right. Uh, one more thing I want to ask. I, when I read your early poems, uh, I kept thinking of um, Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm. I think language. I think jazz. I think the people of the street. I think tape recordings and trying to capture the essence mm -hmm. of the common folk. And like, I don't know, you seem to have changed as you went along, or you different emphases? Or well, was that an accurate sort of perception? Well, well it's an interesting one because um, we, for the poet, I, I should say for myself as a poet, um, I refuse to write the same poem over and over. <laughs> that was just, <laughs> just, just the way that I am. Um, because usually I'm working on two or three different collections side by side, and each of them seem to be different. And I think it has to do with how we use language as a guide, as a guide to, to measure, to gauge the heart.
Um, I want to write poems that surprise me. So maybe that's the direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think yeah. we want to really take, uh, I want to, on behalf of the uh, Humanities Center, yeah. thank both of you guys for honoring us with, our pre with your presence. Yeah. I think it really brought a whole new dimension, you know, of uh, the language in art. In, I mean, it's a great saying in the Caribbean, we talk about languaging. Yes. And poetics. Mm -hmm. Kalalu, crab, and language, and kaison Mardi Gras. So you bring a whole new field to the place. Yeah. And for that, we want to thank you. Yeah. And there are books to be bought. Usually, when folks come and they do the wonderful language, the, the greatest honor you could pay any poet or writer is to buy their books. <laughs> so you're going to have a chance to sort of mingle, buy the books, and have a chance to speak with the authors. Again, thank you so very much for being thank here. You. And thank you. Thank you.